going to be touching this morning on things that may be very sensitive to, to us all, uh, some in particular. And let's pray then protection around our hearts and minds, but also that we might be open to hear what God would say to us and change in us. We pray for those today who need your touch and your grace and your hope in their lives. Please, Lord, would you be revealing yourself now? And please may my words come from your heart to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, please do have a seat. It's uh, lovely and humbling to be with you this morning as we embark on one of the most difficult series that I've attempted to do in the church here. Um, We're looking at God in the Dock, a series in the book of Job. If you're familiar with the book of Job, it's 42 chapters long, and we're going to be looking at the first two and a half chapters and the last four chapters, and there's a whole chunk in the middle, uh, which I'm going to give to you just as poetry uh, along the way. But it's going to pick up on things that, that trouble the soul. And I wanted to try and explain why I feel that God wants us to do this series before we begin. It's much easier, incidentally, as a preacher, just picking on the really nice things in the Bible. (laughs) Because then you can go along and uh, people go, ooh, that was nice, Vicar, I like that. And they go out smiling. Um, But smiling on sunny days isn't always the most helpful thing when rainy days come and fog comes. I was watching The Late Show with uh, David Letterman on YouTube recently, and they had uh, the British Prime Minister over there, and they introduced him by saying, he lives in London. What do we know about London? And then they got a a fog machine (laughs) to to blow fog all around the room. I thought, that's not very fair. That's about 100 years out of date with regards to London. But nevertheless, in our lives, there's often, as there was on The Letterman Show, a fog that comes in in some season or other of our lives. And for some of us, this may be a fog that overshadows a large portion of our life and indeed that is never fully shaken away. I want to try in this series to walk very carefully then. I've from time to time heard people talk about suffering. And some people talk about it as the initiated, and some talk about it as the uninitiated. Some talk about it as those who have forgotten what it was like to go through the lessons, and some talk about it as those who are going through the lessons. And you probably know what I mean. The sort of glib comments like, oh, God meant this to happen for a reason, (laughs) or, oh, what goes around comes around, (laughs) can be extraordinarily painful when you're sitting through trial and trouble yourself and they come as a sort of a knife twisted in the gut in a way that the person never meant it to be and yet it hurts what I wanted to do today is just introduce this series rather than make all the answers and I wanted to make sure you knew that this book was here in in your hands as as a resource to process things through and there's even recommended reading from uh, people who have had their sons commit suicide and others who have had terrible unanswered prayers and, and others who have got philosophical cleverness um, that they can share with us. I wanted to say that when we talk about suffering, there are four possible ways of approaching the topic, and they're all fairly long words. Now, there's the philosophical way, the incarnational way, the eschatological way, which is probably the hardest, and the pastoral way. So let's just 
pick up on these briefly. The philosophical way is essentially trying to answer a question that a Greek philosopher put most succinctly of all, a man called Epicurus. And he set up what's known as the trilemma. You've probably heard of it, if not on your social media accounts in some conversation in a pub. And it simply says that if God is good and God is powerful, how can God allow for suffering? And then philosophical answers can come back to that in various formats, in various ways. Um, You might think how much you want to hear a philosophical answer when you're going through suffering. I've put on page 18 uh, uh, four brief responses to it. Um, Is the trilemma coherent? (laughs) What if God's also wise? What if he also operates with eternal perspective? Doesn't that allow for a bit of a wiggle room? Is suffering always incompatible with goodness? Don't we actually know that suffering is quite essential for life? If you've ever been, as I have, to a leper colony where people are unable to feel pain, you see the fruit of not being able to feel pain. Or if you go to a a, what used to be called a mental ward in a hospital and you see a psychopath who can't feel emotional pain, (laughs) we, we know that these lack of being able to feel sufferings are not good. We're not... God also have the ability to limit his power if he chose to. And wouldn't he want to limit his power so that we could have free will? Philosophical approaches to the issue. The eschatological approach I've touched on already, touched on it in previous week actually quite recently. It says eschatology means the end times. In the end, God's going to make it work out all right. And in Christian perspective, that's a very, very important hope, isn't it? Job didn't have that perspective. As we look through the book, he didn't know what was going to happen next. In one verse, he says, I know that my Redeemer lives, like he's got a hope that I will see him in the land of the living. But in the bulk of the verses when he's talking, he doesn't know if the dead will rise and if there's an afterlife. We have an eschatological hope as Christians, an end hope. It's very, very important to hold on to. It's a great thing. One of Jesus' great answers to the book of Job is that there is something coming. But we also have an eschatological hope now in this life, which again is important. Someone might say, everything happens for a reason. You might want to kick them, punch them and hit them if something awful has happened to you. I can remember a friend of mine who had gone through serious child abuse um, giving her response to that phrase, everything happens for a reason. She's like, that's not what it says in Scripture. What it says in Scripture is that in everything that happens, God can work for good to bring good around. Do you see how that's a different eschatological perspective to the, it happens for a reason? The book of Job is going to tell us actually sometimes it just happens. And sometimes it's just sad. So there's an eschatological response. The pastoral response we'll get to by week five. I've called it sitting Shiva. If any of you have got Jewish friends, you may have heard of this phrase, sitting Shiva. Shiva literally means sevens, sitting sevens. And Job's friends, Job's comforters have got a bad reputation as a result of this book. But the first week of their comforting Job, they did remarkably well. I don't know if you've gone through something and someone's come along to talk to you straight away and they've downloaded their emotions 
They've said, when this happened to me, blah, 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 blah. The reality is it's never happened to them. (laughs) Even if they've gone through something that seems an exact equivalent circumstance. It's helpful, actually, to have someone who's gone through something similar, who's processed it in their own way. But they've never been you, in your place, in your time, experiencing your pain. I've never gone through what you've gone through, and you've never gone through what I go through. We've never been there, and we don't know what it's like. There are two phrases to remove from our pastoral vocabulary. (laughs) But the friend sat Shiva. They sat seven. What does it mean? They just sat with Job for seven days through the midst of his agony. They sat there and they did nud, which is uh, the the phrase for sympathy. And nud is literally what you might see when someone's gone through extreme emotional stress. Have you you seen it maybe on a movie or of a friend? Someone's been through trauma and they start rocking and they curl up in a ball like this. Have you ever seen that? And it's that bit in ourselves that says, I've got to get back into that womb-like experience. We're desperately trying to get back to that place where we were rocked by a mother who loved us inside and in the womb. And they would literally do nudes as they sat Shiva. They would sit there and rock and help the person to rock, soothing them through their anguish. A pastoral response. The fourth and final response that I want to point us to throughout this series is I think probably the most helpful of all. I've put it in the notes on page 17, the appendix, the answer of Jesus to Job from a book by a man called Campbell Morgan. And it just goes through and points out what it's like for Jesus to give an answer to the book of Job. In Jesus, we have someone who suffered when he didn't need to suffer. Someone who suffered extraordinarily, didn't he? It's told in Gethsemane that he had such stress such psychological anguish that he bled blood through his skin, which is a known medical condition, but one that happens in only the most rare of circumstances when you're psychologically so ripped apart that the stress level comes through your veins. It says that he was tempted in every way, yet was without sin. He cried at the grave of his dear friend Lazarus. He was rejected by all of his friends, bar a few. He was rejected by people who said, I'll be with you forever. And most significantly of all, his perfect relationship with Father God was ripped apart on the cross as the Father turned his back on him on the cross. So we have philosophical answers, such as they are. We have eschatological hopes. We have pastoral good practices. And we have the incarnation. But oftentimes when it comes to suffering, we ask ourselves a question, don't we? And sometimes we shout a question. The question we shout is not really any of those answers. We just want to shout, why? And then there's possibly a few swear words that come straight after that if you've got a sort of integrity about it. Why is this happening to me? Why me? It's happened to me. You want to kick something and shout at something and rally at something and scream at something and maybe throw something across the room and pity the poor cat who got in the way. 
Why is it happening to me? And if you happen to find yourself in the midst of pain and suffering today, I want to just remind us that the Bible is full of people shouting that question out at a God who is fully capable of taking the question and also who knows what it was like in Christ. We're allowed to shout. We're allowed to scream. The second question that we ask more in a whisper voice, I think, is, what did I do? <laughs> what did I do wrong? <laughs> or what if I'd done something else? <laughs> is that fair? Of course, there are some what ifs where we can, you know, do the math. If I carry on eating sweet snacks at the rate I'm currently consuming them, my doctor, when I get to my mid-50s, may have things to tell me about diabetes. <laughs> there are some what-ifs that, that we live with the consequences of our choices. If I get into a male midlife crisis and take up jogging, I can expect that my knees will get ruined within five years. <laughs> it's just one of those fairly inevitable things. <laughs> Sport's really bad for your health, isn't it? Have you noticed? It's, 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 I don't recommend it. But there are some consequences that are what ifs. But I find that I ask myself that question for stuff that I had no control over. You know, I don't get a parking space one day and I'm like, oh, what have I done wrong, God? <laughs> Where's the favor flowing? And that's just the trivial because then there's the big things, aren't there? Why does my kid struggle at school? This week I've been talking to someone who's struggling to conceive. Why, why us as a couple have struggling to have a baby? What if I'd done something else? What if I'd made different choices? Have I done something wrong? Am I being judged? <laughs> it's such a prevalent worldview, isn't it? One worldview even holds that the bad happening in our life is a consequence of evil that we did in a previous life do you remember Glenn Hoddle when he was England football manager his belief in the Hindu Buddhist doctrine of karma that many people in our culture have absorbed what goes around comes around Justin Timberlake sings <laughs> and what people thought of Hoddle when he said that the disabled <laughs> are disabled in this life because of some sin they've done in their previous life Somehow the question seems to turn in on ourselves so easily, doesn't it? What did I do wrong? And these first five verses of the book of Job open up a chasm between that question and what may well be happening. Let's just have a look at these verses together in brief. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. We don't know anything much about his history or Uz. Uz is one of the cities of the east. We see in verse 3 that he was the greatest man among all the peoples of the East. What made him great? Well, there were two things. One, his character, and one, his material possessions and success. His character was that he was blameless and upright, and he feared God and shunned evil. In four little phrases on a CV, um, he's just eliminated that question, why is it happening to me? Why is it happening to him? Do you ever get to look at people's CVs? I was reviewing one this week and it, so many words on there, just like loads of words that you just, you look at it and you're like, oh, I'm not reading that. His CVs just, fears God, shuns evil, <laughs> blameless, upright. 
perfect CV. It's supposed to be perfect. The point of this great play of Job is that this guy is innocent. He's utterly innocent in what's about to take place. And then look at his success. 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, the perfect number of sons, seven sons. That's not saying anything, Nicola. We don't have to keep going. Um, And and three daughters. (laughs) Uh, He has a huge wealth. He's a successful businessman, a huge number of servants. He's utterly successful. Everything is going for him. He might even have a nice house in Grove Park or Bedford Park to go back to on the weekend. (laughs) He's doing fine. Everything's going for him. And he's so devout that whenever he even thinks that his children might be mucking up, he does a sacrifice for them. He does it on a regular basis. He has a spiritual discipline of making these sacrifices, of getting himself right with God. There's not a thing about this guy that you can go, yeah, he's got a problem. There's nothing like that whatsoever. This man, his first five verses say, is innocent in the story that's going to unfold. But I want to say that he's not just innocent in the story that's going to unfold. He's also actually the hero. (laughs) Without giving away too much of what's coming up, there's going to be a cosmic battle going on in the upper stage of the theatre. Imagine this is a play with two stages, a lower stage and an upper stage, way up there above the root screen. On the lower stage, I can't see what's going on up there. But the upper stage can look down on the lower stage and see. And up in the upper stage is God and all the angels and those who have fallen perhaps because God made humanity and they didn't like his experiment with these horrible bipeds who he gave free will to. They didn't like that God invested in humanity his own image. They didn't like that he gave them the potential to be like God. They didn't like it at all. And they go to God and they say, yeah, it's not really working, this experiment, is it? The only ones of these bipeds who get on with you are the ones that you're blessing. (laughs) Whenever life gets harder, even when they make it harder themselves, they give up on you. That free will thing you gave them, It ain't working because they don't love you. Whenever it gets tough, they stop loving you. They turn their back on you. They're useless. You should have stuck with the angels. (laughs) And we got expelled from heaven because of this. And God will hear next week is going to say, have you considered my hero? (laughs) Job, down there on the lower stage. I'm pretty sure of him if he turned up the pressure. (laughs) If everything was taken away, I'm pretty sure his heart's right. Because in this season, he's working in what you call the grace cycle. (laughs) He keeps doing the right things by me, not because he wants to earn my approval, not because he wants to earn my praise, not because he wants to prove himself, but because he already knows he's safe with me. He fears me. He loves me. And the cycle works well with him. He knows he's accepted. He knows he's loved. He knows he's valued. And he keeps doing these things for me. And I love them. But his heart's going in the right direction all the time. 
Have you thought about the hero, Job, in the play on the lower stage? I think he could prove that my experiment with humanity is okay. You can see why it's a troubling book, can't you? I'm wrestling with this these last five, six weeks as I've been trying to put the notes together and through the sabbatical. How do we make sense of this thing? If you're not currently in a small group, can I heartily suggest you get into one of our small groups to go through these study notes together? These aren't questions that you want to just look at on your own. Even if you just join for these eight weeks, we've got one in our house on Tuesday night. There's one in church here on Tuesday lunchtime. There are other groups through the week, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday evenings. We need community to think these things through. It's tough to do on your own. And we're not going to get all the answers in the book of Job either. Eschatological, incarnational, philosophical, or pastoral. We are going to see that this man Job was innocent. That he suffered extraordinarily. That he grew immeasurably. That God re-blessed his life so that he could say that he lacked no good thing at the end of his life. And that he didn't end up blaming God despite all the things that went on and despite the bits of the grief cycle where he just railed and shouted at God. We're going to find in Job someone who's held up by the New Testament as an example for when we go through suffering. An example of fortitude, an example of endurance, an example of bravery. But was it worth it for Job? (laughs) Was it worth it? I'll turn to Tolkien for an answer to that. (laughs) In Lord of the Rings, Gandalf says to the hobbits, no one would want to be born (laughs) in these days. But we were born for such a time as this. (laughs) Those things that we go through, you don't really want to ask for them, do you? (laughs) But when you go through them bravely, strongly, and when you get the resources from heaven to endure, the people who can emerge on the other side are people of such character, respect-worthy, extraordinary people. Let the rest of us just go wow at. Every now and then I'm asked to recommend people for ordination. Which is a a difficult task. To be a pastor to people who hurt more than you do. (laughs) To have to sit alongside people in their pain and brokenness. To try and understand things that you haven't experienced and don't know. One thing I'm always looking for in those who go for ordination in other ministries, pastoral ministries in the church, is for the bit of their journey where they got bent and where they got broken, where they got hurt. Because although we've never been where each other have been, you can spot someone who has been bent and broken and shaped a bit, can't you? There's something a bit safer about them. Occasionally I see someone who's never really been put out of joint at all in life. Sometimes even they get to their 80s and the first bad thing happens to them. (laughs) 
And they're so prickly and hard. There's much more to say. And we've got many more weeks to say it in. I haven't got all the answers to this series, as I'm sure you can see and are aware. But let's explore it together and see where God takes us over this time. Amen.